When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Nice to have a head start on the week, isn't it? Happy Tuesday. Here's what we're talking about today. A Mullingar hospital failed to diagnose a fatal tumour in a 12-year-old until it was too late. Now, her dying wish is to meet Ed Sheeran. You meet the Westmeath Bachelor, who was crowned over the weekend and well done to all concerned on the festival. Had a look at some of the images on Instagram and on Facebook and it was mega. If you were there, please send your verdict to 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. And why Barry Cowan, the Fianna Fáil TD for Leash Offaly and former Agriculture Minister, is travelling to meet the EU Energy Commissioner today. He's not happy with the ESB and energy prices in general, and you'll hear why a little later. Now, when you call 0818 300 103 is my number. You can text, you can WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Let's see what's on the front pages today. The Criminal Assets Bureau will be given powers to name and shame criminals. So take, for instance, the revenue commissioners. Every couple of months, you can read in the papers who has dodged their taxes who has reached a settlement. And why was it VAT? Was it income tax? Exactly how did they fall foul? But you can't do that with people who have robbed millions, who've conned, who've burgled, who've otherwise thieved their way to small fortunes and large fortunes. So the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, she proposes to change that and she's bringing her proposals to other ministers this week. The Criminal Access Bureau, by the way, turns 26 this year. It was set up in the wake of the murder of Veronica Gearan, the journalist who was killed in 1996. On the front of the Irish Times, main story says, Thishuk appeals to DUP to take seats. So the Stormont Assembly elections are taking place this week. It will likely lead to a majority for nationalist parties. It will likely see Michelle O'Neill of Sinn Féin installed as uh, First Minister of Northern Ireland with a DUP Deputy First Minister, although they're talking now about changing the title to make it easier for the DUP to swallow. But there's a story, actually. Where is it? I thought it was fascinating to read. The number of... Irish passports being issued in Northern Ireland now exceeds the number of British passports for the very first time. Now, part of that is Brexit related, obviously. It makes it much easier to get through a queue. If you're taking a holiday to Spain, if you've got an EU passport instead of a British passport. But it is it is a sign of the times. Once upon a time, no matter how convenient an Irish passport would have been many people in the north could not have brought themselves to carry it. The allegiance would have been too strong. Not anymore. Sad news 
on midlands103.com this morning. A man has died, a woman seriously injured following a collision yesterday on the N4. This happened near Ballinalack at around five o'clock, so still daylight. The driver of the car was a man in his 70s. Unfortunately, he has been pronounced dead. The woman is in her 70s. Uh, she was a passenger in the car. She was airlifted to Tala Hospital. Her condition is serious. The driver of a lorry, who's in his 40s, he was taken to Mullingar Hospital. Thankfully, his injuries are not life-threatening. But Agartha forensic examination is taking place. So our thoughts with all those who are grieving this morning. Now, on a lighter note, do you fancy living on an island? Because there is a website, Private Islands Online, that specialises in some of these remote retreats. And a number of Irish properties are listed. And apparently you will pay as much for them as you would for a Caribbean island or a Mediterranean hideaway. You might wonder, surely the weather off the Atlantic coast is not going to be as appealing as the Med. But actually, the way they're being marketed, these are escapes. These are clean and green retreats. And so, for instance, one of the most high-profile purchases in the last few years occurred at a price of 5.5 million euro. It was an island off the coast of West Cork, Horse Island, and it was purchased by a Cypriot investor who had never paid a visit to the island. That's a real sign you've got lots of money, isn't it? You buy a property and you don't even visit. But anyway, there was a six-bedroom luxury house, six guest cottages, a pier, a games... Anyway, makes you sick how much money some people have. Now... On a local note, the Portleash Tidy Towns Committee is not happy. They would like your assistance to try and track down somebody who vandalised one of their floral displays over the weekend. This was on James Finton Lawler Avenue. There may be CCTV in the area that picked up those responsible. But over the Maybank holiday weekend, anyway, somebody decided, nah, I'm not having enough fun in the pub. I'm not having enough fun with life in general. Let me just rip this asunder and cause some damage. So Port Leash, by the way, was Eyeball's cleanest town in all of Ireland last year, thanks to the hard work and the effort of the Tidy Towns Committee. So we owe it to them to try and figure out what happened here and point to those responsible. The Independent over the weekend reported on a couple from County Roscommon who have vowed to go to jail instead of paying a fine. Why were they fined, you ask? Well, they had travelled 70 kilometres to Mass during lockdown. You'll remember how heated this became. Oh, way back when, and thankfully we've cast it into our distant memories, but there was a time when... Many people on principle felt they wanted to worship, they would go wherever they could. And in this case, Jim Ryan, 64, and his wife Anne, 59, they found themselves in court for the very first time in their lives this month. 
and they were, well, excuse me, last month, they were summoned for breaching the five-kilometre restriction on Palm Sunday on March 28th, 2021. Anyway, they say they have no intention of paying the fine. We'll see how this evolves in court as the case continues. Now, putting retirement centre stage in your life. Retirement is a distant dream for many, many people. And when you're in your 20s or 30s, you don't want to put money into a pension, do you? You'd rather spend it there and then. But the Irish Times introduces you to a number of people who decided early on in life they would put a little extra aside. One of them is Michael Horton. And he reckoned that prior to the events in Ukraine, he was only about three to four years away from retirement. The war there has upset some of his investments, so he's a little bit more distant from it. But why is that remarkable, being three or four years from retirement? Well, he's aged only 38 so he would be pitching the hammock in his 40s. Well, for some. So it turns out he had an epiphany some years ago. He was a web developer and he was barely scraping by. He and his wife. His wife stays at home to look after the kids. And they decided to scrimp and to scrape and to put money aside and to invest and so on. And you're thinking, oh, there must be a magic formula here. What is he doing right? And then you get to a line which says, in... February alone, he saved €15,000. How much money did he therefore earn if he was able to save €15,000? Yeah, there's a reason this guy can retire early. Anyway, moving on. If you have students, watch out. The cost of fees is going down. Some good news, actually, in today's newspapers. The Minister for Higher Education, Simon Harris, will outline how he intends to reform the third level sector and front and centre will be a cut to student fees. Now, there is a sting in this for everybody else. A couple of years ago, there was a report looking at different ways in which we could fund third level. They talked about student loans. They talked about increasing the student contribution, you know, the fees you pay at the start of the year. And they talked about increasing the amount of tax that would be diverted to higher education. And they've gone with the latter. So more and more of the tax take in the country is going to be spent in universities and in third level institutes. And that obviously means less money for other things. So we'll see exactly how the minister intends to pay for this. But he's got an agreement from the Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath, to do this. And one or two other stories, finally. The long-standing uh, finger of blame as to who is responsible for the deaths in nursing homes during the COVID pandemic, that is now pointing towards the courtroom and you will be hearing over the next year or so a number of cases taken against nursing homes, wrongful death actions. And you might think, and some people have already attacked some of these families, accusing them of being money grabbers or unsympathetic to the plight of nursing homes who were, like everybody else, learning on the fly. There was no textbook in advance as to how you should deal with COVID. But an example is given in, I think it's the Irish Independent, yes, the Irish Independent this morning, of a gentleman 
who was in a nursing home and his daughter received a telephone call at five past seven in the morning. And it said, you need to come into the home. And so she rang her mum and she rang her brother and she rang her sister. But she was the only one allowed in. And she went into the room to discover her father dead in the bed, his mouth and his eyes open. And she had to ask the nurse, is my dad dead? And the nurse said, yes, he died at a quarter to seven. So she received no forewarning and the circumstances, she says, were absolutely horrific. And her mother and father had been married for 60 years and the only way her mother could say goodbye to him was through the window of the nursing home. And they feel like they're getting no answers. So every time she asked the nursing home about the circumstances leading to his death, she would be told no comment, no comment, no comment. And so she argues the only way she can secure the information she needs is to go to court. And that's why she's doing it. Anyway, that's in the Irish Independent this morning. So there's a selection of news for you, some good and some not so good. Oh, and I didn't even mention the one about Russia trying to blow us all up. Have you heard there was a broadcast on Russian state television over the weekend showing the impact of a missile with a 100 megaton warhead if it were to strike the coast of Donegal it would cause a giant tidal wave 500 metres high it would wash away the British Isles or so this propagandist told the Russian nation on television over the weekend well in case you're building the canoe or the ark or otherwise trying to get away I wouldn't be overly worried I mean, if they fire a nuke our way, that's not exactly good news. But they do not have the capacity to wash Ireland and Britain away. There is no bomb big enough to do that. It will blow up a city, absolutely. You can maybe make a case for one city over another, but I think we're pretty safe where we are. Anyway, we're in the middle of the country, for God's sakes. Compared to what we've had, it's an improvement anyway. Were you at the Westmeath Bachelor Festival over the weekend? If so, please send your pictures by WhatsApp to 083 30 10 103 because seriously, the scale and the execution was just brilliant based on everything that we've seen so far. Um, now next, a sad story. How Mullingar Hospital failed to diagnose a fatal tumour in a 12-year-old until it was too late. But, but, but. This lady has one dying wish and with your help and if we can make enough noise it might just come true. Had this little girl been diagnosed sooner it might not have saved her life but it could have improved the quality of life that she would lead. It might have prevented her being in so much pain. Unfortunately now, this 12-year-old girl, soon to turn 13, has a very short life expectancy. However, she has a wish that, with your help, and if we can make enough noise online, on social media, perhaps this wish will come true. I want you to meet Fiona Baxter, who is a solicitor with Baxter Mimna Solicitors, which is based in Longford. Fiona, good morning. Good morning, Will. Thank you very much for having me on the show this morning. Pleasure. Wish the circumstances were better, but how and ever. Let's go back two years ago and tell us 
how this girl came to go to hospital in the first place. This time two years ago, Will, this little girl was like any normal 11-year-old, happy-go-lucky, heading off to school with her four brothers and sisters and out playing with her friends. At the end of July 2020, she started complaining of neck pain and her mother brought her to Midland Regional Hospital Mullingar, where she was told by the doctors there that it was a cyst. And despite pleas from the girl's mother at the time for further investigation, she was discharged home with the advice on painkillers. In the days that followed, the pain did not abate. She attended with her GP who prescribed painkilling medication and referred her for an x-ray, an appointment which arrived some seven months later. Less than a week after first attending at Mullingar Hospital, she began vomiting profusely and lost power in her lower limbs. At that stage, she was rushed by ambulance back to Mullingar Hospital and the following day she was transferred to Temple Street and a diagnosis of transverse myelitis was made. Now, transverse myelitis, Will, is a very rare condition. It's a disorder that causes an inflammation of the spinal cord. Now, she remained in hospital and later rehabilitation from August 2020 to December 2021. Throughout that period, she was treated for transverse myelitis, but unfortunately, she never regained power and was left paralysed from the neck down. Just before Christmas last, she was discharged home to the care of her family. In February, just over three months ago, I suppose now at this stage, Will, her mother noticed that there was something not quite right with her arm. And she brought her over to Mullingar Hospital and she was later transferred to Temple Street for further investigation. Now, as a result of those further investigations, a diagnosis of high-grade glioma was made. And what does that mean? That's a form of cancer as opposed to the condition of transverse myelitis. Mm. So this changed the course of the legal proceedings quite considerably, as they had been initiated as a case of delayed diagnosis of transverse myelitis. But now we were dealing with a case of both misdiagnosis of the condition and also delayed diagnosis. And it was our case that she was A, uh, treated with the wrong condition initially, and B, she should have been treated two years earlier, which would have improved the quality of her life and lessened her pain. So, as she is, how intensive is the care she requires? She is just after um, finishing up six weeks of intensive radiotherapy. Now, two weeks into that radiotherapy, further MRIs were carried out and unfortunately further tumours were discovered. She's quite sick at the moment and um, she is due back for further MRIs within the next week to two weeks. And it's hoped, well, depending on those MRI results, that she may be able to commence a chemotherapy drug. But it is very much on a week by week basis. Mm. I hate to uh, ask, but have, have the doctors given a life expectancy? Well, the life expectancy for high grade glioma is between nine months and three years. But that's from the onset of symptoms, Will. So we are now at the upper end of that spectrum. So unfortunately, time is very much running out. What is the learning from this? The learning from this, um, Will, is that I think further attention to detail needs to be given by the medical profession. Well, time will tell if that happens. But for this little lady and for her family, she has a wish and you might just share that wish with us. 
Yes, her wish. When she, her, her huge wish at this moment in time is to spend as much time as possible with her family. But what she would love is a FaceTime call with Ed Sheeran, if at all possible. And how have you, and the family more widely, how have uh, you tried to get Ed's attention? We have been trying to get in contact with his various representatives over the past week. But unfortunately, we haven't got any feedback at this moment in time. Well, you're talking to 122,000 people now, not to put you on the spot, but (laughs) I imagine if we were all to start contacting Ed Sheeran on social media, that just might get his attention. It might just get his attention. I understand that he's due to play in Limerick this weekend. So we would be hoping to maybe get his attention at that concert, if at all possible. And who knows, maybe uh, some representative of his may be listening or may uh, hear the interview subsequently online and hopefully it will lead to uh, the sort of meeting that this little girl would it so really, love. What, what, how, how much would it mean to her? It would mean the world to her. Um, I suppose, her, um, just to say, Will, during the course of the proceedings in the High Court last week, her mother gave evidence to the court, to Mr Justice Coffey, who was dealing with the case. And to give evidence in a court case is never easy, particularly for a lady in the situation that she finds herself in. One of the things that she said to Mr Justice Coffey was that he, she showed him a picture of her little girl and she explained to him that this was her little girl, a picture taken before she got sick, and that her little girl had a name and a face and a smile and that she hasn't seen that smile much over the past two years. So I suppose her mother just wants to make her little girl smile. Fiona, thank you very much for taking our call this morning. Thank you, Will. Fiona Baxter of Baxter Baxter Mimna Solicitors in County Longford. So find Ed Sheeran's uh, handles on social media. Reach out if you can. The more of us who do it, the more likely this story is to come to his attention. Liz wants to know if anybody has watched the new instalment of Downton Abbey, which is in cinemas at the moment. Is it worth going to see? Because the cinema is a rather expensive day out. It can be all right, yeah, let's not even go there. The price of the tickets, the price of the popcorn, the price of the Coke, the price of everything that goes with... Anyway, Downton Abbey, thumbs up, thumbs down, out of 10, want to score it, please do. 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp. Now, next, the Portleash Tidy Towns. They've done incredible work over the last couple of years and even managed to claim the title of Ireland's cleanest town in 2021. Somebody, however, is not on their team. You'll hear what happened after these. Now, a huge thanks to Alan and Shamie Donnellan, The Point, and last but not least, The Daily Clan, who all gathered this morning in the early hours. And what did they have to do, you ask? Well, they had to round up a goat and sheep who were loose in the island area of Ballycumber. I hope at least dawn had broken and that you weren't up in the darkness. But anyway, a huge thank you from Crummy Daily. Love the nicknames. Nicknames are brilliant. What's the best nickname you ever came across? Now, still on the agenda today. When you might call in the engineer. Obviously, if you're buying a second-hand house, an engineer's report comes in handy if you're to draw down a mortgage. Most of the lenders will insist upon it. But when else might an engineer actually pay for themselves and not just add cost? 
and €500 to spend at Lidl. They're opening their brand new renovated store on the James Finton Lawler Avenue in Port Leash this Thursday. Even more incredible savings on everything you need and you can download the Lidl Plus app for even more savings. Now, speaking of Port Leash, over the bank holiday weekend, somebody decided to amuse themselves. Not to the amusement of the Tidy Towns Committee. Vincent Booth is the Secretary of Port Leash Tidy Towns, which has done enormous work over the last couple of years. Uh, last year, 2021, being named Ireland's cleanest town, we should remind you. Vincent, good morning. Morning, Will. How are you? So what happened? Well, I suppose uh, we have volunteers that go out and give up their own time throughout the week. And on the bank holiday Monday yesterday morning, one of our volunteers was out picking up litter, having the town looking well for visitors, and uh, came across one of our three-tiered planters that had been knocked over on James Fenton Lawler, uh, Lawler Avenue, actually not far from where the new little is opening. And uh, all our plants and all our soil, everything all over the paving, all over the all over the road. Quite disappointing, disheartening really, mm. but I suppose well it 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 is an isolated incident and I suppose really we're lucky that way and we kinda of put focus on the positives really more than the negative. And we, that we, is we the don't. challenge, isn't it? Because I suppose a tidy up of an incident like that isn't going to take terribly long, but the wind it takes out of your sails, that's more the issue. Mm. Yeah, but like you know, this this, this 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 happens. It happens all over the country. I suppose we're not unique in that sense. But I suppose we kind of we we don't focus on that. We kind of say, well, look, it it happens. Unfortunately, it happens. It's it, it's not nice when it happens, and it's a mindless act. But we kind of just dust ourselves off, and we kind of then focus on the positive. Actually, this morning now we have started uh, just this morning. There's a, one of our Ukrainian um, visitors, one of the refugees staying in Port Leash, an artist, and she's starting to paint a mural for us on, uh, down along the Triog, along a, a wall along the Triog. Oh wow! So yeah, so so we're, 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 her name is uh, Yana Koretska, and she's a professional artist back in Ukraine. And so we were looking for work uh, for uh, a mural of a biodiversity project, a bio- biodiversity landscape. So Yana has um, gladly volunteered her services, and she has just started this morning as we speak. How so long will it take her? Is it going to take a week, two weeks? Any oh, idea? Well, that's a good question. It's going to take a while because it's quite a long stretch of, of wall. It, it goes down along a river walk along the Triog River into our town park. And um, we're very excited about it because it's, uh, she's an amazing artist and we're delighted to have uh, her contribution from the Ukrainians. We also have Ukrainian volunteers to come out and pick up litter with us every week. So we're, they want to be involved in the community. We're delighted to have them involved and it, it just makes for a good atmosphere and good involvement from, from everybody, from us and from the Ukrainians. Well, that's a much, much better story than what happened over the bank holiday weekend. Looking forward to seeing that now. That should be quite eye-catching. Absolutely. We're delighted with it. We're thrilled with it. And and the the theme of it will be our local flora and fauna, which are in the park and, say, in the river beside us. So it'll be educational. The murals, it's not just a mural for a mural's sake. It's to be educational. It's, It's themed by adversity. 
sustainability and you know so we're we're glad that to have the involvement of Yana and we're glad that it's going to be it will be spectacular. We're really looking forward to the finished project. And um, Port Leash is having, uh, I suppose, is really grasping the positives from a horrible situation in Ukraine. There was the shop uh, open, the mm-hmm. zero-cost shop, in the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks as well. So, well mm-hmm. done to all concerned. And thanks for bringing us some good news on this Tuesday morning, as well as, unfortunately, a bit of a setback over the weekend. No problem. OK, well, thank you very much. Vincent Booth is Secretary of the Port Leash Tidy Towns. 083 30 103 on text and WhatsApp from Paddy Phelan and Abby Leakes. Will, a lot of work goes into the Tidy Towns effort, doing our best to keep the community looking well. Shame on whoever would do this. They simply do not respect the tireless work of volunteers in our community. And, you know, maybe when judges come to sentencing and very often they are looking for non-custodial options for minor crimes. You know, Port Leash, Tidy Towns and others can always benefit from a little bit of community service. Well, it would help if people had a specific and concrete action they could do to help the little girl whom you mentioned earlier, like an exact place to log on. That's from Moira. Well, Ed Sheeran is on Twitter, he's on Instagram, he's on Facebook and if you just type Ed Sheeran into the search, you will find him. And you can reach out with a tweet or a message at Ed Sheeran on Twitter. Simple as that. And maybe we can grab his attention if enough people reach out and he will hopefully, because he'll be in the country in the next few days, he will connect with the family of that girl who unfortunately faces a very short life expectancy not helped by a delayed diagnosis at Mullingar Hospital, albeit we should point out, unfortunately, it would not have saved her life, but it might have spared her quite a degree of pain and discomfort. Now, the 10 o'clock news is on the way, uh, after which Downton Abbey, since Liz was curious, will get you a full review. It appears to be getting very, very good uh, critical reviews. We hope as well to link up with the new Westmeath Bachelor. And you'll hear why Barry Cowan, Fianna Fáil TD for Leash Enfilly and former Agriculture Minister, is meeting with the EU Energy Commissioner. And his main complaint focuses on the ESB. Details in an hour. Good morning. Now, still on the agenda today, a Midlands TD takes his fight for cheaper energy prices to the European Commission. You'll hear what the arguments are. Friends, the musical parody, comes to Mullingar. What you can look forward to. And is Downton Abbey worth a cinema trip? Medical herbalist Emmett Walsh whips up some fresh concoctions from half ten. And when to call an engineer? Is it just when you're buying a house or are they useful during an extension or another build? A small build, obviously in a large one, they've certainly got a, a price worth paying. But how can they save you money on some of the more routine jobs too? Plus, €500 can be yours to spend at Lidl. Their new store is opening in Port Leash this week. All eyes on James Finton Lawler Avenue this Thursday. Now, in Russia over the weekend, the state broadcaster carried a mock-up of what would happen 
if a nuclear weapon was detonated off the coast of Donegal, not as an attack aimed at us, but in response to the UK's support for Ukraine. And the clip shows a tidal wave washing over the British Isles, a tidal wave that would be 500 metres high, and the presenter claimed that this 100 megaton warhead would carry extreme doses of radiation, turning these islands into a radioactive desert. Now, many on Twitter and elsewhere have reacted by saying, well, hang on, it doesn't have a warhead that big. It might take out a city, but it certainly wouldn't take out Ireland and the UK. But what is the message behind it? And how should we respond? Sean Kelly is an MEP, a member of the European Parliament for Ireland South, and he joins us now. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Will. Nice to be with you again. Some people might be very quick to write this off as just propaganda and sabre-rattling and bellicose talk and so on. What's your reaction? I think it's an indication of the frustration that Vladimir Putin is feeling as a result of his so far failed attempt to take over Ukraine. This was supposed to be a military exercise which was uh, would be completed within a week and now it's gone on for over two months and he has to change his tact in terms of strategy and also in terms of his ambition, pretending now that he only wants to take over the eastern side of Ukraine. And also he never expected there would be such unity amongst the European Union and the Western world, including the United Kingdom, the USA, Canada, Australia, etc. And really, he is at his wit's end to try and use every method to bully uh, the European Union and the UK so that they won't continue, number one, to welcome refugees into Europe, and secondly, that they won't continue to give arms uh, to uh, the Ukrainian army and the United Kingdom has really changed their tune since the start of the war in that regard. They're now much more supportive and have given far more arms than they indicated initially and, of course, have also joined the sanctions regime. So, really, this is Putin saying, well, if he keep going, I'm going to use nuclear weapons against you. Is that what he's really saying, though? Because this is aimed at a domestic audience, presumably. It's on Russian state TV, and he wants to create the impression that he has the means to wipe out his enemies. But should we really pay attention? Without a doubt. And as you said, it's state TV. No other TV or uh, independent uh, radio channels or media outlets are allowed now in Russia. So they're just getting the message to keep them all on track. And ironically... Uh, surveys seem to indicate that support for Putin has gone up rather than down since the start of the war. But he probably is just trying to uh, keep the people motivated, particularly as next Monday is the big national day in Russia. And he wants to show how strong Russia are and how vibrant they have become under his leadership. And this is, you're quite right, another way of showing that. But also it is definitely a coded threat to the European Union and the Western world uh, that uh, he is not going to lie down. But uh, I think it's also a sign of desperation because he hasn't had the successes he expected. He has lost anything between 15 and 20,000 
soldiers and a lot of equipment, and he's covering all that up, and you're absolutely right in that regard. Going back to the UK, you mentioned their hardening of their stance. Liz Truss, who's the Foreign Secretary, she said last week, we will keep going further and faster to push Russia out of the whole of Ukraine. Now, it could be argued that such talk is maybe unhelpful in giving Mr Putin an off-ramp or giving him a way out or a means to back down. How do you see him perhaps finding a way to settle for less than his initial ambitions? I think this is very difficult. And when people talk about peace, it's hard to see how you can have peace in those situations. I mean, well, it's like this. If somebody invades your house and uh, they don't succeed in throwing you out completely, do you settle with them and say you can have half the house? So that's the situation here for the Ukrainian people. And some in the West are saying that, you know, we can have peace talks, but Putin needs to be given something so that he can emerge with a type of victory. And a part of that would be, of course, that he could keep the east of Ukraine, which, of course, doesn't make a whole pile of sense when you look at it from the point of view of the sovereignty of Ukraine itself. And, of course, then uh, would he stop at that? Would he not just... Uh, gather his forces again, and in due course, he or his successor attack the rest of Ukraine or some other country that they might like to take over as well. Of course, the Russians would argue, going back to the house analogy, that there wasn't always a fence in the location the fence is now, and they feel somewhat entitled to push the boundary of that. But nevertheless, he has to, from his own point of view, present the Russian people with a victory of sorts, and if he cannot claim Donbass, that eastern region, is he going to be content to just withdraw to his borders and pretend the whole incident never happened? I can't see that happening. The only hope is, though, that some type of an opposition would emerge, perhaps, within Russia. And a lot of the intelligence coming, especially from the US, who seem to be the leaders in this, uh, would indicate that while there is no open opposition, many of those close to him aren't enamored by what is happening. And maybe if this drags on for a while and there are more and more losses, and particularly if the sanctions work, I mean, if the sanctions, and they are getting uh, more and more stringent now in relation to oil and gas, that really will help to cripple the Russian economy. And Putin might have no place to turn. And as you said, he might have no reserves to continue with the war and uh, public opinion could turn quickly against him in that regard and I think that's something that we probably have to hope might happen. Finally, what is the position on German importation of Russian gas and if and when they're likely to turn off that tap permanently? Well, they have agreed now that they are willing to put an embargo on oil into the European Union. That would be a big blow uh, to Putin. But, of course, gas is the big one. And at the moment, the European Union is looking elsewhere for gas. And above all, we are looking in the sense that this crisis is now happening at the beginning of summer. So there's at least six months to look elsewhere. And only last week, the Energy Commissioner, uh, Kadri Simpson, was in Kuwait and Qatar looking for supplies of LNG, and there are also untapped uh, supplies, massive supplies in Africa in countries like Nigeria, Senegal and Angola. 
So it's quite likely that they will be looked at very urgently now, and that would help to uh, give alternative supplies to Russia because uh, the European Union has said, regardless, they want to reduce dependency on Russian gas by 66% before the end of this year, and that would be huge. And of course, also, Will, there's a question for us in Ireland. We really would want to be looking at our security supply in terms of gas because of the crop field depleting rapidly. We're dependent on one pipeline from England, which is uh, outside the European Union now. And uh, I think we really have to look at uh, LNG in Ireland and possibly even looking also at uh, how we can get alternative supplies because if we are in a situation in Europe where there's no Russian gas, it's going to be coming from the North Sea where most of our gas is coming from and there'll be pressure on us as well. So we have to be a bit realistic and a little more proactive than the government are at the moment. And no doubt have to expect higher prices as a result. Incidentally, is Russia not just going to redirect much of their gas to China and and to Asia? Is he likely to lose much sleep over the loss of a European customer base? Yeah, they have a difficulty. They could, in some respects, redirect a lot of their oil elsewhere if there was demand for it. Well, there's plenty of oil in the world, so there wouldn't be that much demand overnight to change uh, country supplies. But in relation to gas, it's not moved as quickly, and they don't have the LNG capacity ships to travel, take it elsewhere. So they haven't the pipelines. So it is estimated that a, a maximum of 30% of the supply into Europe could be moved to other countries. So it would really be a huge blow to them. And that's what Putin is now most worried about, especially when he sees the European Union uh, looking elsewhere and particularly looking at alternative supplies and LNG across the world and utilising ports, which we have underutilised LNG ports in Spain and Portugal, etc. So over the next uh, weeks, it will be interesting how things will develop. And I think Putin is uh, a little bit nervous at this stage that his uh, game of Russian roulette mightn't be working out as well for him as he would have thought. Sean Kelly, Fidegwell MEP for Ireland South. Thanks for taking our call. You're welcome, Will. Anytime. Thank you. Just gone 20 past 10. Downton Abbey is in the cinemas. Is it worth the price of admission? We've already had one vote, a 10 out of 10. If you've seen it, we'd love to get your verdict too. On the subject of energy prices, a Midlands TD is going to make his case to the European Commission today, a complaint against the ESB. And, friends, the musical parody is coming to Mullingar. Plus, medical herbalist Emmett Walsh is coming here. It's being described as the litmus test for cinemas after the COVID pandemic. Will enough people go to see Downton Abbey to prove that the cinema is still an attractive way to spend an afternoon? Well, I suppose it all depends on the movie, doesn't it? Well, Ellen Butler, good morning. Morning, Will. A self-confessed Downton Abbey fan. Absolutely. Watched all the series? Yep. Watched the previous movie? Yep. And watched this one over the weekend. And the verdict is? Brilliant. I loved it. Now, there is a bit of criticism for it, though. I think as most loyal Downton fans will, they'll, they'll say they loved it. But it it kind of relates to the pacing of it. I feel like they probably packed a bit too much into it. And even, you know, someone like me who isn't well versed in cinematic stuff, I noticed at times they were cutting from scene to scene to scene very quickly. 
So uh, it seems like maybe it's quite got quite a large cast, a well-known cast, and they seem to try to apply a subplot and a storyline to every single one of them and it just seemed a bit too much. So I think that might be the main criticism out of it. When eventually it's released more widely, a director's cut could be in yeah. order. A little I, bit more content, I a little picture, less rushed. Yeah. The, the editor's floor, so to speak, would be scattered with uh, deleted scenes. Um, so yeah, a bit disjointed, which... I suppose it's down to the direction, maybe, because Julian Fellows, the writer behind it, has been like consistently good in terms of of the writing, like the cast is excellent. So it's unusual because uh, it's it's different from the previous movie. Again, it just seemed like it was quite snappy. And at times I was wondering, like, what was the point of that scene? when you think of the, the work that would have gone into setting it up and filming it, the time and mm. the effort and the money. So it's obviously big budget. So that doesn't really well, come into there. For fans, we have process. a flavour. Yes. Let's have a listen. Have you told them, Lady Grantham? She's told us nothing. Do sit down. I've come into possession of a villa in the south of France. What villa? <laughs> Start at the beginning. Years ago, before you were born, I met a man... They spend a few days together and he gives her a house. You never thought to turn it down? Do I look as if I'd turn down a villa in the south of France? So, two questions. We'll get to the second one in a moment. How would you watch this if you'd never seen the series? Could you go in there cold? I'm not, I'm not sure you could. I actually thought of that as I was watching it. I think just too much is is assumed and they don't go back over it. It's not one of those franchises where you could start fresh with movies. Um, now, I would recommend going back and watching the series because I thought it was great. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's one thing. You probably would be a bit lost. All right. So for people who've been following until now and no spoilers, please, what's the premise? Well, you kind of gave it away there in the in the trailer, which uh, that is all set up in the first 10 minutes or so anyway. So, so you didn't uh, spoil anything there. But Maggie Smith, who plays the Dowager Countess, uh, who's a very witty character, uh, reveals to the family that she has come into possession of a villa in the south of France. So uh, that's kind of the main storyline. But also, and again, this is revealed very early on. Uh, a movie um, set kind of arrives in Downton, uh, a production company, should I say, uh, arrives in Downton and uh, kind of they're the two two sets. So some of the family go to France to follow this villa storyline and some of them stay stay home uh, and help with the production. So there's lots more uh, uh, quite dramatic uh, bits. Again, there's a bit kind of going on for every single character. I'm always amazed with Downton how they're able to mix like really poignant, sad moments like the tears flowing in the cinema the other night when I was there. But then there's absolutely laugh out loud moments too. So it is. It's nice roller coaster. Yeah. OK, here's the verdict. So from Ina, big Downton Abbey fan, very much looking forward to seeing this film from Declan, who has seen it. Very, very good from Amelia, she would go nine out of ten. Her <laughs> fella fell asleep in the middle of. <laughs> right, I guess he was just volunteered to yeah. go. And one more that was a ten out of ten uh, from a previous listener. So yeah, verdict seems good. Yeah. And Google reviews, by the way, nine point five out of ten. Like for Downton fans, anyone listening, they'll absolutely love it. Like get right. to the cinema. Excellent, Ellen. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Now let's get down to business. Emmett Walsh is here from the Rosscore Clinic in Blue Ball in County Offaly. How are you, Emmett? Hello, Emmett. I'm good, Will. 
Okay, first question, first order of business here. Uh, what could you take to relieve a non-productive cough? Now, this person says they've tried a number of cough bottles and so far none of them have worked. They did have a heavy cold, nothing to do with COVID, about two weeks ago. And other than the lingering cough, they have fully recovered. So they need something to give it a kick in the you-know-where. Well, we won't say we won't say where. But can you hear me there, Will? I can indeed. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Um, okay. So a, a, a non-productive cough, which is very common with some of the bugs that's going around the place. Um, one of the simplest things to do is to make up your own onion, and you can do it very, very simple. Onion syrup is is quite a nice and safe and gentle. Um, uh, cough thing which helps to loosen up phlegm in the chest so you could combine if you want to make it stronger you could combine uh, onion and garlic and depending on the on the on the proportions you can make it 50 50 of onion onion garlic or you could make we'll say 20 garlic and 80 onion but anyway what you do is whatever amount of uh, we'll say take 100 grams of of the onion or onion garlic mixture which you have chopped you add sugar to that in the same the same quantity of sugar so 100 grams of herb 100 grams of sugar and put it into a jar and layer it move up along the jar fill the jar to the top with 100 100 100 mm. 100 i'm guessing that becomes quite syrupy and leave it there for it does it becomes it turns into a syrup very quickly even within half an hour you'll have syrup formation. But um, it, it, it would take a, a full day before you'd have to wait a full day for it to, uh, for the herbs to infuse into the syrup, into the sugar, the moistened sugar, and that's your medicine. So you would take uh, a dessert spoon of that maybe four or five, six times a day. You, you'll know yourself what you need. Whatever you need, take it. All right, next query safe. comes from Joe. He has two questions, so we'll deal with the first one. How many nettles should you use? I, I presume he means in a soup or in some other remedy. Uh, lovely small nettles out at the moment, he says. Um, a, a good uh, guide is to take an ounce of fresh nettles to make a cup of nettle tea. That, that's a good uh, guide. So uh, it, it would be, we'll say the equivalent of one of those nettles, which you would pick about an inch up, an inch over the ground. And th that will make a cup of, chop it up into smaller pieces, and that will make a cup of nettle tea, and that's your medicine. And the next part of his question, he sees lovely dandelion out at the moment, and he's wondering what can that be used for, and also should you avoid if you have heart issues? Okay. Uh, as regards dandelion at the minute, dandelion at the minute, a lot of the uh, flowers are up uh, very strong, the yellow flowers. And also you have uh, the flowers have turned to the to the seed which floats in the air. Now, you, you need to take away that, that stem which supports the flower head 
because it's full of a, a white milk that's quite acrid and is uh, is not really that nice and should be removed. It's the leaves are 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 your medicine, and it's only really the leaves should be used. And the leaves are used as a diuretic to get to help uh, clear fluid. It is a safe medicine to use. Uh, again, uh, to give you a guide as to how much you would use. If you have an advanced, fully mature uh, dandelion with the seed head uh, gone to seed and beginning to blow away, we used to be able to tell the time from these things when we were kids and we believed it. We were very innocent, weren't we? Anyway, <laughs> um, so you, you would take about two of those leaves, full leaves, again, taken about an inch up o over ground level and chop it up and add it to... Uh, a glass or a cup of, of boiling hot water and leave it sit there for about five minutes, strain it and that's your that's your medicine, you drink that. So, so dandelion, if you have heart issues, you need to consult a medical herbalist or a doctor. Um, it, you know, there are many types of heart conditions. So, you know, when somebody mentions heart, if you want to get the attention of anybody in, in just say that you have chest pain. Anybody that talks about heart, you always have to be uh, careful and you always have to check things out and don't rely on the on the on the uh, Internet. It's not reliable or it may not be reliable in right. cases like this. It's, it, there needs to be a personal assessment made as to the safety of use of dandelion with people who have heart trouble. OK, noted and underlined and emphasised now. The next query is from Elaine, who is 32, and she says two months ago she was diagnosed with COVID-19. At the time, she didn't have any severe symptoms. It was more or less a cold. However, in the weeks afterwards, she hasn't regained her energy. She's very lethargic, especially in the afternoon and in the evening isn't able to exercise at all, much less with the same vigour as before. And she's wondering, is there anything to, I suppose, accelerate the effects of the virus getting out of her system? OK, so I think she's actually uh, done uh, a good bit of self-diagnosis there to get the virus out of the system. Uh, so... She, she's she's negative as regards uh, an antigen test, uh, quite quite likely. So so she's presenting with some form of long COVID, and th th this is the problem with COVID that it can affect um, the ability of these little energy production units within each cell, these mitochondria. We've spoken about them before. So probably what she should do is she should take uh, coenzyme Q10. That will help. Uh, to uh, keep her energy levels up a bit and help the mitochondria to produce energy because the, the coenzyme Q10 is an essential component in energy production in these little units. So that's the first thing I would say and follow whatever instructions are on the tin. So, you know, approximately you're talking about taking one 30 milligram coenzyme Q10 tablet uh, twice or three times a day. You have coenzyme Q10 tablets 120 milligrams and some of them even I think up to 200 milligrams I wouldn't take them I'd just take the turkey and take take them two or three times a day and it's best to take them with an oily uh, 
or after an oil an, an oily meal. So, so an oily meal could be considered something with a bit of cheese in it, something with meat in it. Uh, you, you can take a teaspoon of um, olive oil and that's oil. So any, anything like that. Uh, as regards, the, the other thing I would advise is to take high dose uh, vitamin C for a week or so. And finally, thirdly, uh, take, a, take a good multivitamin just in case some of those are depleted as a result of or battling this COVID thing. And uh, finally, then, uh, a general uh, herbal anti-infective. So you can go to your health food shop or go to your uh, pharmacy and see how they uh, a good, reputable uh, anti-infective uh, herbal combination, which can uh, be used in this situation. And you need to keep taking it for at least three weeks. Um, and if, it, if you're coming here, I would also give you a lymphatic to make sure that uh, well, more to be sure, to be sure that the, the lymph system gets a bit of a hammering with this COVID thing. And especially after, um, you know, people showing these kinds of symptoms, it's indicative that the body is under pressure to try and cope and maintain a normal immune response. Stay there for a moment, Emmett, because this question there? has to be continued. There are a few people and, and Michael is one of them. He's in his late 30s. And he had COVID early on, so nearly two years ago. But he insists he's still feeling the effects of it. Uh, and another lady says she had COVID in 2021 and hasn't been able to return to work as a result of it. So low are her energy levels. So you've got some people who've had just this lethargy and this malaise and they're getting over it but others have been affected far more severely. Let's come back to it in a few minutes. Ask your question by sending a WhatsApp to 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Emmett Walsh is here from the Rosscore Clinic in Blue Ball in County Offaly. And our previous question, Emmett, was with, I suppose, a mild example of long COVID, and you described the approach to take. If your symptoms are more severe and long lasting, and I gave the example of Michael, who is coming up on two years of ill effects, do you need something a bit more heavy usage? Uh, you, you would, yes, and, and more long term use. And you would, need, you would need individual treatment with a medical herbalist. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it, invariably when you have long COVID, with this long COVID, there's no difference between long COVID and what, what we have been treating over the, for, for years, decades, this post-viral syndrome situation, stroke, chronic fatigue syndrome. It's the same thing. It's just that it's COVID is involved in this one. And it's, it's nothing different. The same principles are involved. So you must treat the lymphatics. You must add in antioxidants. And you must support mitochondrial function. You must do these things. And if you do these things, these persons, will, these people will get well. The, 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 the biggest problem with, with these cases is they'll feel good within a couple of weeks, even within a week, and then they'll stop taking the medicine after a month. Uh, my ah. advice is just don't do that mm. because um, these, the, the, uh, my reading of the situation, and I've had to do a good bit of study on this ever before COVID came along because of this post-viral syndrome and chronic fatigue, syndrome situation. My reading is that, the, you know, you know I, I had to find out, I had to try and answer the question, where in the body 
is it safe for a virus to survive? And when I looked at all the possible um, uh, areas of the body where a virus can survive, there is only one. There is only one area where the uh, immune system cannot attack, and that's within the nerve cells themselves. So uh, there is there is n- no medicine can get in there. Nothing can get in there. Um, okay, some of the um, some of the modern medicines for the likes of MS and that they they just deal with the external uh, membrane of these nerve cells, but nothing can get in to the inside of these uh, nerve cells. And the viruses can hide in there, in their millions, and portions of the virus can hide in there. And um, so <clears throat> these people need to take uh, some kind of a herbal anti-infective, a strong one, for months to, to be safe and be sure to be sure that the virus is going to be got rid of. And uh, the other thing that these people need is is lymphatics over a long time because one of the things about COVID, and it's, it was as a result of research in COVID that, uh, this, that this information came about, it was discovered that COVID was getting crossing the blood-brain barrier, uh, which they didn't know where. They had to cross the blood-brain barrier someplace, but apparently it was it was crossing into the blood into the brain in the area of the pituitary, which has a weak blood-brain barrier. Why I'm not so sure. I, I didn't bother looking into that because it was it wasn't important. The fact is that uh, the lymphatic system was weak at that point, and the blood-brain barrier was weak, and it was able to get through the lymphatics, through into the brain, and set up this brain fog this uh, weakened um, immune system, because a healthy nervous system is essential for a good functioning immune system. It's absolutely essential. And this this was stuff that I uh, was lucky enough to uh, study years ago when I was doing research in this whole area. Uh, So lymphatics are essential to treat. Antioxidants are essential to input on a constant basis. The... the, um, the strange thing about COVID, and it's it's not really answered. Well, I don't have the I don't have the answer for it anyway. At this point, is that um, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I remember reading stuff that uh, ivomec could be used in 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 COVID. Now, I'm not please don't get me wrong here. Now, I'm not telling people to go out and use ivomec. I'm not saying that you have to go to your doctor for this. Uh, or, or discuss it with your doctor, see if it's suitable. But it, it was definitely the case that Ivermec uh, had some kind of an impact uh, in suppressing COVID. So this meant that in some, this didn't make sense because COVID were dealing with a virus, whereas Ivermec is against uh, worms and mm. these type of things. So, uh, so when I began to use uh, uh, herbs that had. Uh, um, a long known history of use in treating worms and similar type of bugs, um, the likes of this uh, travel sickness, these guy, this gyardia and stuff like that. Um, I, I could see very quickly that it was having quite a considerable effect in suppressing the effects of this long COVID and dealing with not alone COVID, but also Lyme's. 
and there is a connection between Lyme's and COVID. Exactly what it is, I don't know. It's probably as it's probably through the um, through the lymphatics again, because fundamentally the same treatment is employed in both by by our people, and uh, there are, we we get the results. We're not claiming anything. All we can say is that if you do this and this, this is the result that we have seen. That's all I'm saying. Um, we've set up no randomised control trials uh, um, because who's going to pay for them? So, um, all right, but uh, you, your outcomes are based on observation anyway, and my outcomes are based on observations, yes, and clinical use, which is the most important thing. It's not just a, a, a proposed article that somebody wrote in a, in a, in a, in a, in, a, in a, an academic paper. It's based on clinical experience, and I've 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 maintained contact with people who are following up on this line. And one of the best people in the entire country in dealing with this is a medical herbalist down in Templemore called Kiro Amara. And I think you met her once. Um, mm. she, she, she worked here from time to time. She is very good in all of this. And she has given me a lot of information on all of this. So this man needs to be with somebody at the level of Kiro or somebody like that. And uh, Stay with her, because she has had results, and we have had results. Uh, you know, using these, um, using this approach in dealing with both COVID and Lyme's and all post-viral chronic fatigue syndrome scenarios. Is that okay? All right. Well, he can make his uh, inquiries and then reach a decision. And I think, uh, unfortunately for this gentleman, Michael, his uh, own medical team are confounded as to why the effects are so long-lasting. Now, back to the remedy you suggested earlier. You recall the syrup to deal with the uh, non-productive cough. Um, And you might just repeat the recipe for this, but a few people have asked if brown sugar would be as effective as the white sugar you referred to? It would be, yeah. You can use brown sugar if you want. It's more expensive, but you can use it, definitely. And it probably would be better because it would have more little little bits of minerals and vitamins as compared to white sugar, which is nothing, only sugar. So in making the syrup, you're putting what in layers in the jar? You, 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 You alternate, we'll say, one inch of the herb, the chopped onion, chopped garlic, in whatever proportions you want. So one inch of the chopped herb, one inch of sugar, and then one inch of of the chopped herb again, one inch of sugar, and keep going going until you fill the jar. And very quickly it'll turn into a syrup. And within 24 hours you can can pour out some of the syrup and take a teaspoon every couple of hours if you wish. And you can give it to children, it's safe. It works very well with children actually. A few people have noticed that wild garlic is starting to appear in their areas. What is wild garlic useful for? Wild garlic can also be used in in this situation for a cough. We have found it to be quite an effective anti-infective generally. And, you know, one of the things that, that I've been doing since I started into this business is observing nature. And, you know, what why does... You know, you ask yourself the question, why does uh, wild garlic grow at this point, at this time of the year? Why doesn't it grow in the middle of summer? Why doesn't it grow in the middle of winter? OK, you can easily explain the middle of winter because there's no sun and heat and stuff. But why does it grow right now? Why doesn't it grow in February, which which it could grow if, if, if it wanted to? 
even January. Why does it grow and, and is abundant and is at its peak efficacy in the end of April, early May? And the reason is very simple. Well, it's not simple, but um, if you observe the wild animals, the deer come down from the from the um, Schlieve Bloom Mountains around this time of the year, specifically to eat the garlic, to build up the wild garlic, to build up their immune system. So they're smart. They, they, they've known this for millions of years. So, so uh, observation of animals uh, doing these things, I learn a lot from them. Final one for you, Emmett, because time is of the essence from Gillian, who has lost her voice and she's wondering what you might take for the throat to bring back her dulcet tones. Well, when she says, I need to have more information, Will, people can lose their voice for many reasons. Like, you know, did she get a virus infection? Is, is it a combination of overuse of the voice combined at the same time as uh, some kind of viral infection? Did she get laryngitis? Uh, is there an innate structural problem in the voice box? I, I need to know a lot more to be able to know what to do. But fundamentally, any one of the things that, that, you, that, that you would do is to ensure that there's no, or, or try to eliminate the possibility of throat and, and uh, voice box infection infections so treat laryngitis if it's if, if it's existing if there's any uh, lung problems treat them because that will ultimately um, affect the, the, the voice box there's lots of things don't use the voice that's that's key um, all right I take your point not a one size fixed all be herbs that would be very drying and and the stringing type of herbs so even equisetum which is a horse tailor Herbs like that, there are numerous herbs to consider. Emmett, we're out of time. Grateful for yours. Thank you very much for taking our call this morning. Emmett Walsh can be found at the Rosscore Clinic in Blue Ball, medicalherbalist.ie. Good morning, as still to come today. What will an engineer see in your house that you won't notice? And why are they worth the extra cost during a build? Even a modest build like an extension. Plus... The musical coming to Mullingar Arts Centre based on Friends. This one guaranteed to have you laughing out loud. You'll meet one of the star performers very, very soon. And, by the way, much praise for the Country Music Festival that was held in Kilbegan over the weekend. Ina being in touch to say it was four hours of solid wall-to-wall entertainment Music and dancing on our doorstep and congratulations to Bruce and the hard-working committee on the efficient running of same, she says. Well done. All round. €500 to spend in Lidl can be yours as well this week. I'll give you more details how you can win in a few minutes' time. You'll need extra money, given the price of energy, with many providers increasing their rates from the 1st of May. Don't forget the carbon tax increase took effect as well. And today, Barry Cowan, the Fianna Fáil TD for Leach Offaly and indeed former Agriculture Minister, travels to Strasbourg. And he's going to be approaching the EU Commissioner on Energy to discuss the market here. Now, let's summarise his concerns through the words of Daniel McConnell. He's political editor with the Irish Examiner and he's reported on the story today. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Will. What is Barry Cowan's accusation against the ESB? Essentially is that they've used their monopoly position in the market 
and their dominant position in the market to over overcharge customers uh, during a set period of time last year. Uh, and what he and the people he's working with have uh, claimed and are claiming in their submission to uh, the European Commissioner for Energy, Kadri Simpson, who he will meet tomorrow in Strasbourg, as he said, is, is essentially that um, the, the level of prices being charged, the kind of the wholesale prices being charged, um, are way above what the input prices should should lead them to be. So they're, what they're saying is they're essentially seeing, seeing patterns of excessive charging. Uh, and while they, it, it, they kind of first notice with the ESB, uh, Barry Cowan is warning that they are now seeing other players and generators in the market uh, following the same same practice. So what he's saying is that like there's there's two lim- there's two limited uh, competition in the market, which means then people are abusing their market dominant position, and that's the charge being levelled against the ESB. And this predates Ukraine and all of the turmoil in the energy yes. market. He's yes. suggesting so that yes, of, some of the, uh, the the raw materials have gone up in price, the fuels, but the increase in the wholesale market far exceeds what the change in fuel costs are. That's the that's the claim, and they've identified a figure of two hundred and fifty million euro extra in charges that were were essentially levied on consumers and customers last year during that set period of time, uh, which were essentially above and beyond what would normally be deemed acceptable uh, given the kind of the factors. Uh, like Ukraine uh, and elsewhere, so this is this is this is what Barry Count, who who has been sort of beating this drum quite quite loudly for for several months now, um, has, you know, has been claiming. Now the ESB in January came out and published a series of papers seeking to refute Barry Count's claims. Uh, however, Barry Count has obviously gone to the regulator here in Ireland, and then has obviously kind of sought to 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 raise this issue at a European level. Um, and he had obviously made an, a submission to the commissioner's office recently, and obviously they obviously have deemed fit um, that there's sufficient stuff there to, to merit a, a meeting with Barry Cannon, and that's what's happening tomorrow. Now, the ESB, as you've said, stridently denies his allegations. What, in essence, is their argument? Their argument is essentially that they're they're just you know they're, they're doing what uh, they're trying to do all that they can in order to to minimise the prices that they that the price increases that they're passing on are the ones that are, are essentially legitimate caused by wider external forces, uh, and they're they're very mindful of, of the market and essentially that there is it's their claim that there's no evidence really uh, to back up Barry Cowan's claim of excessive charging. So um, you know I'd be surprised if they would have come out and said hands up yeah actually you've got us nailed on. Those in that market dominant positions tend to always defend the line quite quite strongly, um, um, but ultimately it's their position and has been a consistent position all the way along that there really is no case to answer here. So it'll be very interesting to see now whether or not out of this meeting with Barry Count tomorrow, whether or not the European Commission for Energy decide to push it on even further to open up a full investigation or whether or not they just simply say there's not enough here to, to, to merit any sort of investigation or examination. So it, it will be quite interesting. But I do think it is significant that Barry Cowan, uh, who is now, you know, he no longer has the standing of, of ministerial office, has managed to secure this meeting with the energy minister or commissioner, I should say, in Strasbourg. Mm. So let's see what comes out of it. Who is the energy commissioner and how much power do they have? Yeah, so it's a lady by the name of Kadri Simpson. She's a Swedish um, politician. Um, the commissioners are, are, you know, they're like, so under the, the rules of the Lisbon Treaty and, and the previous treaties, each European country has a commissioner. Now, some are obviously more powerful than others. Like, so trade, 
um, and and you know finance etc. These are the kind of the top tier uh, kind of commissionerships. Energy would certainly be up in the top, if not the top tier, then then certainly close to it. And because given you know given the, I suppose the war in Ukraine has shown um, the need for you know more diverse energy supplies across Europe. So it is a powerful portfolio, probably increasingly uh, powerful. So it is a significant meeting that Barry Cannon has secured. So um, so so it'll be very interesting. And we've seen individual kind of commissioners like so the competition uh, uh commissioner uh, Versteiger ha, you know has obviously you know she has you know uh pushed her own very strong agenda against the likes of Apple and other kind of you know internet companies so i mean the commissioners do have real power they are the executive of the european union they're essentially the government of the european union so they have real power to affect change and and to kind of uh, I suppose defend the rights of citizens over companies where they seem to have gone wrong. So, um, and certainly, you know, the European Union is very much alive to this idea of market dominance companies abusing their position. Uh, while that case is yet to be proven against the ESB just yet, um, I certainly think they probably are alive to any sort of accusations such as that because they we know during the time of the the IMF troika uh, process here. You know, Ireland was, was sort of noted as, as having a lot of these sort of sheltered sectors and kind of uh, areas where there's a lack of competition, uh, and that obviously has an adverse effect on on consumers and, and the prices that they pay. So ultimately, as I said, it'll be interesting to see whether or not the commissioner does find uh, enough in Barry Cowan's submission to to see whether or not it merits a full investigation against the ESB. Just one final question. I note in the examiner today, you've uh, soundings taken of Fianna Fáil TDs and the mood seems to be that Micheál Martin can remain in situ as Físeach and nobody's going to be nipping at his heels for the leadership just yet. Michael McGrath would appear to be the favoured successor. Does Barry Cowan feature in there at all? Um, not massively so. Now, there are a number of people who, who would say that Barry Cowan is, is extremely able and, uh, you know, should and both deserve a place at Cabinet. Um, I think it's the fact that you know, the, you know he's awaiting the, the conclusion of this GSOC process into his own, um, you know, the, the drink driving allegations back in 2016, which ultimately forces his his sacking from government. Um, 20, you know, when he failed to kind of do what he was told by going in and be accountable to the doll, he he wanted to go through the GSOC process, and the Taoiseach obviously wasn't going to uh, do that. Uh, I I think you know as long as that is still live, then I think his chance of getting back into the cabinet are somewhat limited. However. Uh, he is someone who is held in very high regard throughout the political party, the, the Fianna Fáil party, and there is certainly no question that Barry Cowan uh, is, is one of the more able members of the Fianna Fáil ranks. And, and, and the, the charge made against Micheál Martin is that he has promoted sort of lesser people to cabinet. Um, but I suppose given Barry Cowan's expulsion and, and departure from cabinet, he would need to get back there first before I suppose any real leadership ambitions are uh, are, are, are sort of being, being being forward. I think also as well. You know, I do get the sense that Barry is somewhat maybe scarred by the experience of his brother Brian in government and the nature and how his his, his time in office came to an end. So uh, he's certainly someone who's highly regarded, but I just don't see him maybe in the in the mix uh, for the leadership uh, contest at, at the moment. Daniel McConnell, thank you very much for taking our call. You can read more in the Irish Examiner today. Lidl is proud to announce the opening of its newly renovated store on James Finton Lawler Avenue in Portleash this Thursday. And you will have, on top of all their everyday low prices, offers and fresh produce, even more extra offers in store that you cannot miss. So having €500 in your back pocket to spend there would be very nice indeed. Now, to win, uh, you will have to come out of the draw on Friday for €500 worth of Lidl vouchers. Five names will be in there. 
to be our caller of the day, you need to tell me which purchase of all the things you've bought in your life, which one do you most regret? Which gave you that most acute case of buyer's remorse? 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp. And the very best of luck to you. Remember to put your name on it and where you're listening. Which purchase do you most regret from all of your life? You won't regret hiring an engineer. Or so we're going to be told in 10 minutes. Even if you're on a reasonably modest project, they reckon they can still save money. But also what an engineer might spot in your home that you will never notice. That's on the way. Rembrandt's and I'll be there for you. The theme of Friends, of course, which, if you're a fan, you're kind of confined to reruns. Maybe the odd special where they get together and reminisce. But if you want some fresh material, well, you need to be in Mullingar because Friends, the musical parody, is on tour. And Jonathan Walker-Gilland is here to tell you more. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Where's that accent from? Uh, originally from Memphis, so the States. Uh, and then I lived in New York for a little while and now live in the UK. And what brings you to these parts? Uh, well, friends. <laughs> uh, but to the UK in general, uh, uh, I, my husband uh, and I moved to the, the UK because uh, he's British. So we decided the UK was, was where we wanted to be at for a while. And you know that the UK and Ireland, huge Friends fans. And it's always... I do know. I do know that now, for sure. (laughs) It's always risky when you take on something that people are very protective of. They have their memories. They have their impressions. And how daunted are you to uh, launch into a project that is so beloved and so cherished? Well, we've been going, um, I mean, the tour originally started in 2020 and then, of course, got um, shut down because of COVID, like the rest of the world. But we picked back up in January. So we've been on the road now for four months. So while it was slightly scary um, to pick that back up and go again, I think the thing that we have proven in town and town again is that we are taking a, a source material that, just like you said, people are so close to but we're giving new life to it it is you know 10 seasons crammed into a two-hour musical with all of these huge moments from friends but also these these lovely little lines and um, I think our actors and my my fellow actors and myself have done a really good job of picking up on some of the impressions and you know we're not a, a, a full impersonation of it right like if you if you want the exact tv show then watch it on netflix but if you're wanting you know something very similar that's a lovely lovely tribute and parody to uh, a show that everyone has come and loved then we are the musical for you without spoilers what's the premise well i don't think that there's any spoilers if you've ever seen friends <laughs> i mean we literally uh, Rebecca, who plays Rachel, comes in in the wedding dress and she uh, uh, comes back at the beginning because she didn't get on the plane. Like, we oh, are. Okay, so you recreate it as it was. Storyline of Friends. Yes, sir. With our little twists here and there to, again, make it a parody, make it a tribute. We do um, talk about the actual actors themselves slightly towards the end. Um, and of course, um, last October, uh, James Michael Tyler, who of course uh, uh, famously played Gunther, um, has passed yeah. away. But we put a, a small little tribute to him at the very, 
very end of the show. Um, so it is, like I said, we are having a good time. You're going to laugh, but it's it's not going to – it's a tribute and a parody combined. It's not taking completely – um, a laugh at it. We are, we are we are having a good time, and and the audiences. Oh my goodness, the Irish audiences so far. We we did a week in um, the Borgash in Dublin. We did a week in Cork, and you guys you guys are so good. Like we've spent like I said, we've spent uh, time on the road since January, and some of our best audiences so far have come from um, the uh, from Ireland. So we are we are loving our time here for sure. You play Gunther in this, and on a personal level, what does that mean to you to try and be true to the original? Well, I think the fun part about Gunther uh, originally coming to this in 2020 is he's he's this big, he doesn't have a lot of lines, right? But he's a character that we know, and a lot of people, I did not realize this, but he's, he's some people's 100% favorite character in the entire series. So there's a little bit of, like you said earlier, a little bit of challenge, I think, taking that on. But at the same time, it's more his reactions. It's more him listening to the group. It's more his, um, you know, his side glances or a, a, a little smirk here and there. Um, and and to be completely honest, coming back into this in 2022 after his passing, I think it was a beautiful moment. Our director um messaged me on the day he died, and he just said, because we had already had the contract, we, we knew hopefully long as we weren't shut down because of COVID again, we knew that we would be coming back. And he just said, how lovely is it going to be to be one of the first people um, to, to get back up on stage and play tribute to him and, and, and bring him back to life. And I, like I said, there's a, a little moment at the, the very end of, of the show that every single night we just, we just sort of give a little nod to, to let him know that, that we're thinking of him. And it, it really does touch my heart every single night to be able to to play mm. such a, a, a big and lovely character. There were 236 Friends episodes in all. He was in 185 of them, more than any other so-called minor character. Exactly. Uh, again, he is that famous, I think, seventh friend. And um, you watch him for all those the side glances and the funny, you know, the, mm. the love interest. And he, he's, such a, he's such a lovely, warm character. Um, and like him, I'm also a barista in my time when I'm not acting. And um, he actually grew up not too far away from where I did in Memphis. Uh, and like I said, I lived in New York. I, I, I personally feel a connection to him um, every single time I get to go onto the stage. And uh, I, I'm, like I said, very honored to be able to play him. And do you have a favorite character? Doesn't have to be him. Um, I, I don't have one in particular i think the hard part or the lovely part about these characters is that you know they're all they're all finding themselves in their 20s and just like all of us are we're finding ourselves in our 20s you know i, I moved to new york city when i was 22 and um <laughs> moved into an apartment with a couch that wouldn't fit and had to hold the whole pivot moment and but you find yourself i think a little bit of yourself in each of these characters and i think that's why it's still playing today. I think that's why it's still relevant today. I think that's why a new generation, every single couple of years, there's this resurgence of friends because not only have the people that watched it live or watched it, you know, right after they finished, we're getting, we're getting now generations that weren't even born when it finished playing are watching it now and loving it. Because again, they're going through this time in their life that we can't get back. 
um, and they're and they're finding them, themselves when truly our friends are our family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I sort of find myself a, a little bit of it in each of them. Oh, it's a timeless, timeless quality to have in a series and in a parody. And you can enjoy it in Mullingar Art Centre on the 6th of May. Jonathan Walker-Gilland, thank you very much for taking our call. Thank you so much, sir. Have a great day. Now it's time for About the House and Garden with thanks to B&Q. And we do this every year because at this time, May coming into June, it's a great chance to do the spring clean, to see things with fresh eyes, come up with ideas. And, well, you're going to be spoiled for ideas over the next couple of weeks. And change is made easier with B&Q, from the smallest screw to the bulkiest items. DIY.ie delivers over 27,000 different items. So, let's talk about engineers. And if you've ever bought a second-hand house, there's a very good chance you'll have engaged an engineer. Uh, What about for smaller projects? Would you consider it? What are the benefits? What are the costs? Let's tease this out with Pork Connell who is a chartered building engineer at Porrick Connell Consulting Engineers in Athlone. How are you, sir? I'm great, thanks, Will. Thanks for having me. Now, let's talk about a house purchase, first of all. We're obviously looking at second-hand bills here, new property, you hope at least it's been built to the specs. A house that is 10 years old, 20 years old. What is your eye looking for that perhaps somebody like me who's not trained won't spot? Yeah, I suppose, look at uh, buying a property now in this country is probably one of the biggest financial commitments that anyone will make. So basically what we do is we go in and we look beyond the aesthetics and the paint and we look for issues like maybe the, beyond wear and tear, the likes of blocked drains, make sure that there's proper disabled access, any sort of watermarks and ceilings which would signify of leaking pipe work. Big things we would look for is like structural issues, if there's any structural cracks throughout the property that may show that there's uh, maybe significant movement with foundations. We'd also look at uh, issues with, if it's a semi-detached property or a terrace property, fire transfer between properties, because some properties we've looked at, you've been able to travel between the attic spaces of the properties next door. So that can create a huge issue if a fire breaks out in, each, in either house. Um, also look at things like even the stairs to ensure that that's in accordance with your building regulations, fire escape from bedroom windows on first floor. When you would look then externally on the property where you can find a number of issues down to the likes of septic tanks, percolation areas, locations of wells, mm. where these things are on your property or sometimes on the property next door. Also looking at even your your invasive species, the likes of uh, Japanese knotweed. That's the one you don't want to see. No, absolutely not. Some of these sound like deal breakers and others perhaps come back to the negotiating table. So do you guide on when to walk away and when to do a deal? We would, absolutely. Like, I mean, down to the likes of even watermarks and ceilings and stuff like that, that's, that's something relatively small. Looking at the bigger issues would be the likes of uh, problems with your boundaries, problems with septic tanks and percolation areas. Structural issues on the property are big, big issues and ones that we would highlight to the vendor that, or to the purchaser that, you know, maybe it's a property to stay away from. That whilst the price is expensive, it's a house that you want. The costs of trying to rectify the issues just are beyond economical repair for them. And you give an approximation of what the bill might be? We would indeed. We would indeed, yeah. We work closely. We we have quantity surveyors that we work with and we'd outline the issues and we'd also um, come up with the, the solutions to the problems and try and put a cost estimate on that. 
And is there any uh, trend in terms of the age of a build as to how much problem is likely to give? For instance, the Celtic Tiger was much maligned as being a period in which standards were skipped. It was. You you probably look at a house that was built maybe in the 1940s or 50s that would be in better conditions than ones that would be built in the 1990s. Wow. Which is, is strange to say, but it, it, that, that has happened. That has happened. So when else might you consider calling in an engineer? Well, you would, if it's a property issue, structural issues, if you find that, you know, you suddenly have cracking throughout parts of your house and you're wondering why, particularly if it's a house over seven or eight years, and the cracks now starting to appear. Generally, that is an issue with foundations and movement. And we would come in and we would try and identify and locate or isolate the exact location of the problem. Usually with foundations, you would always have a big issue with water. And you'd mm-hmm. always find that the majority of structural issues with houses centre around where there's an escape of water around foundations and that. So the disasters of pyrite and mica and so on, they're the exception. They are, yeah. Like, I mean, they've been isolated, thankfully, in just certain locations in the country. It's not it's not in all areas. Um, and again, nowadays, with the way quarries are run and the certification required for any stoneworks or block work that's coming out of any of the factories, they're all fully certified now and tested, thankfully. Porrick, I'm thinking of the sort of land we have in the Midlands. Much of it is peaty and water is a reality and and a certain amount of subsidence. So would you see a lot of that movement on bills in this part of the country compared to others? You wouldn't really because, again, the ground conditions would all be assessed and tested and you would carry out your detailed testing prior to, I suppose, designing your foundation. So whatever you're building, your foundation is the main part of the mm. house so your ground conditions have to be assessed fully before you decide on the foundation to put on it so so if that's done right you shouldn't really have absolutely. major problems absolutely once the ground the, the, it's always the most important piece is the piece you can't see so what's below ground make sure that what's above ground stays so mm. it's important that that's done correctly yes how do you establish that retrospectively if you are coming to a house that is already built mm. and you've been asked to inspect what you can't see you can't see well, if there's an issue, it's generally localised to one area. Well, you would hope. If you can find, the, I suppose, the, the, the problem causer, as I said, like it's generally an escape of water. It could, it could be something similar as a, as a gully from a downpipe that's broken. So you have all the water coming off the roof, coming down your downpipe and flowing into the foundation of one particular area, washing out the fine soils underneath your foundation. Suddenly your foundation slips or, or settles in one corner. The way and the only way of rectifying that is with uh, underpinning. So what does that mean? Basically, it's it's uh, piles. They're like steel piles. They can be uh, steel piles or they can be concrete piles that are driven into the ground underneath where the foundation has slipped, and they would then create act as a prop to that foundation. So they would be driven down to firm um, soil or rock. Um, that would then be stabilizing your foundation at that corner. Porrick, uh, a few people have asked about boundary issues. So does an engineer's inspection usually take into account the folio and how well mapped that is? 
It would like before we would do any survey, we would do a, what's called a desktop study. So we would look at things like planning issues. We would look at your folio file plan. So we would that, have that in our possession before we go out and do the survey. So when we're out on site, then we'd compare what's on your folio file plan to what's laid out on the ground, and we would try and you know pinpoint or, or identify any discrepancies mm. that would be at that point of the sale. And that's, that's a regular occurrence. So the folio is with the land registry. Isn't it, it is indeed. Yeah. Yes, it is. And there are for older properties sometimes not an actual folio no it would be a registry of deeds so it would be a written deeds but there would be maybe a hand drawn map with that and you know, <laughs> that sounds like a recipe for trouble. It, it, absolutely, because I mean, ever since uh, Ordnance Survey have done the digital mapping back from probably the mid nineties, they've seen. Be prior to that, I think that the maps would have been from nineteen sixteen. So now, when you overlay the old uh, maps with the new maps, there has been a number of discrepancies on the boundaries. You know, and that's and that has, has caused problems. Primacy. How, how do you win the argument? Well, I suppose possession is probably nine tenths of the law, number one. But if you're in possession of a piece of ground that, you know, is on someone else's folio, it's really two ways of looking at it. It can go through a deed of rectification or we'll have to go through the whole, for the want of a better word, rigmaroles of solicitors being involved and trying to, you know, take back possession of the piece of ground that's on your folio, but is not actually within your boundary. And, you know, probably nine, nine out of ten times it's easily rectified. But on the other occasion where the piece of ground that you own is inside someone else's folio, but that now has a mortgage on it, it can become more difficult to release that piece of ground mm. because it might devalue the property below the value of what the price of the mortgage is on it. So, mm. And that has caused issues. And unfortunately, with everyone building in the rural countryside, when the boundary was set out day one, it was probably set out with your eye. And now when it's gone uh, digital and it's more accurate, you suddenly realise boundaries in the wrong place. And, you know, you hear it every every week, you end up in court with it, you know. And that's, you're trying to get two people to, you know, see sense and things like this. And unfortunately, uh, the problem with common sense is not very common. Even where they agree, let's say a purchaser is trying to acquire a property where there's some issue over the title, all of that probably has to be resolved before the bank will release the funds. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and that can mean delay and delay and delay. It, it can. And I mean, as I said, when we go into a property, I know, you know, vendors probably see us as a grim reaper coming because we're coming to find problems with your property. Um, and as, as much as, you know, we don't like giving bad news to anyone, it really is up to us to identify it because if something should happen maybe six or eight months further down the line that wasn't picked up on our survey, you know, and that can cause trouble for the person that just bought the property, but also that comes back on ourselves. And a, a big thing we find is, is, is with ethics because you, when you have a practice in the rural countryside, there's a good chance you will, you know, a property will land on your desk to do a survey, but you know the person that owns it and you're being asked by the person to buy it to go in and look at it. So, like, he, on a lot of occasions, we've had to turn down work on that because you just can't go in and look at a property belonging to someone that you know who owns it. Yes, or you risk being knocked off the Christmas card list. Absolutely. <laughs> Among Absolutely. other hazards, yeah. yes. Porrick uh, Connell is with us. He's a chartered building engineer. And if you wish to pick his brain, he's here until 12. 083 30 10 103 on text and WhatsApp. Porrick Connell is with us. He's a chartered building engineer with Porrick Connell Consulting Engineers in Athlone. And a few people have inquired about cost, and maybe this depends on the size of a building, but if you're getting an engineer to inspect standard three-bed house, 
How much don't you want to charge? Um, well, I suppose, it again, it all depends on the property. You say a standard three-bed, semi-detached house, you're probably looking at somewhere around 450 to 500 plus fat, somewhere in that area. Again, if you're going out into the rural countryside or into a bigger area, you're looking at your land maps and you're looking for rights of ways, you're looking at other issues that may raise for a house in rural countryside as opposed to a three-bed semi in uh, residential development in a town. Backpedal a second. Rights of way. There are a few texts here now about yeah. rights of way. What sort of disputes come up typically? Um, I suppose the biggest problem with rights of way is to have it established and to prove that you have a right of way. Down through the years, again, going back to the rural countryside, people would have had access to other people's lands if they were going in even to cut turf or if they were accessing land inside the land holding. And it was always, you know, my father, my grandfather, great-grandfather would have went through this gate and travelled through this field. And mm. then all of a sudden the field that they would have travelled through has changed hands and gone out of the family and sold to someone maybe who's not familiar with the area. And they buy the land and suddenly they put a lock in the gate and you arrive down to access your land and you realise you can't get through the field. Unless it's now registered and established, you know, things like that end up in court, unfortunately. Um it's not a right of way is, you know, it gives you access through lands. You don't own the actual roadway, but you have a right of access over it either by uh, on a vehicle or by foot mm. or to transfer animals. And as I said, the biggest problem you have there is where disputes arise and you find the gate is locked and you're all sitting in court then because of that. And are you, in effect, a historian going back, trying to establish when everything happened? Yes, you would be, because you'd have to establish, you're, you're looking at the historical side of the lands to see how far back you would have used this right away. Even looking at the various times that it would have changed hands as well. But it, it, it's now, you're now going in, you're now getting it registered. It is being marked on the map. It's generally marked in yellow and it's highlighted as a right away. And once you've that established and you've proven, yes, you know, you can't be stopped going mm. through that, mm. uh, going along that roadway or whatever that's through the lands. All right, we've a text from Jim who wants to develop a granny flat uh, to the rear of his property and he's wondering should he get an engineer in because it's a relatively small build and his concern obviously is <laughs> the economics of it. How would you potentially save him money? Go, go ahead there. How would you potentially save him money? So I just missed the first part of that. Yeah, sorry. so he's buying... Sorry, he's developing, rather, a granny flat. He wants to rent it. And it's not, obviously, on the scale of a, a three-bed house or whatever. So he's wondering, on the economics of this, what will an engineer do to save him enough money to pay for the cost of an engineer well I, I suppose really what we would be looking from is to or, or first and foremost is to ensure that what's built stays standing that's from a point first point of view but the second point of view is probably just taking a step back and looking at the planning implications or the planning issues if you want to build an extension to the back of your house you can build up to 40 square meters but the use of it must be ancillary to the use of the main house so if you're when you building, say ancillary that means it must be like something like a, a playroom or a session room or an office gotcha. that's used by the occupants of the main house if you're looking at it as being a standalone separate entity to rent it well then you would need to get planning for that you know, outside mm. of even having to look at whether it's going to stay standing or not uh, from an engineering point of view again you're looking at the main issues your foundations your walls your roof structure 
and to ensure that the main structure itself is structurally stable. After that, then you're probably looking at from the energy efficiency side of things, how you're going to heat it, how you're going to keep heat in the property and how you're going to have low running costs during the lifetime of, of the property. So you're looking at probably value engineering then at that stage that, you know, whatever you pay out, you're getting a long term return on it and it's not going to cost you a lot to build. But uh, the way things have changed in this country, particularly from, say, the mid 90s, it was cheap to build a house but it was expensive to run. So you were heating it with oil, turf or briquettes or whatever. So it was expensive throughout the lifetime or the lifespan. Nowadays, it's ex- it's expensive to build your house, but it's cheaper to run. So mm. it's it's flipped the other way. And it, it's probably, even when you see all the negativity and all the reports in the papers at the minute in terms of, you know, your products and your materials are all rising and your labour is rising, it's not cheap to build a house and it shouldn't be cheap to build a house because it's something that you're going to spend the rest of your life in and probably your kids and your kids thereafter. So it's not a short term investment. It's a long term investment. Do you and builders always see eye to eye? Well, to a certain extent, you like, I mean, if you have a good builder on site, he knows what you're looking for. He knows what he should be building. He knows how to build Mm. it and the proper way of building it. And he knows that it has to be built in accordance with the building regulations. The big thing about us as engineers, prior to going on site, we would take your drawings if you've gotten planning permission and we would then produce construction drawings. And that would be nearly a step-by-step picture for the builder and how you would build this house and how the proper way Mm. it is of building and what's required at the end of the building in terms of your declaration of performance for your materials, your building certificates, and we would do inspections throughout the build of the house as well to ensure that, you know, what's on our drawings is actually being physically built on site. Yes, so you're working for the person who's commissioned the build as opposed to the builder. You absolutely. will call out the builder if there's a problem. Absolutely, absolutely. As we would do continuous inspections throughout the build of the property. We would You would build up a relationship with your builder as well and you would know from an early point of the build whether the builder can be trusted or not. All right. Uh, from a listener in Mullingar, when you are applying to the planning office, are you legally bound to show the boundaries as they appear on the land registry or can you move them out on a client's instructions? So I presume this is where maybe there's a dispute or... It's, 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 I'm not sure if that's a question that I'm, he's asking the engineer can move it or whether the client wants to move it. Like, I mean, as the engineer, you're going on what the client tells you. Mm-hmm. So if the client tells you they own that property, you're not really going to go around... You don't have to, to validate No, I, I don't. Yeah. No, no, because the, the client has given you the undertaking that they own the property. And if they don't own the property, then you have to get a letter of consent from the landowner saying that they're allowing the applicant to apply for planning permission on their land holding. Right. And do you have to make sure what the client tells you is correct? Well, you would always ask for a copy of the land registry folio map as part of the planning application. And we would generally (laughs) submit that as part of the planning application as well that shows it. But sometimes, you know, what's shown in the folio file plan, the applicant may say we own X amount of land outside of that and if that's on a separate folio or in a different folio yeah then we would look for the client to produce a letter of consent from the actual landowner of the piece of land A listener hopes to sell their home in the next year and downsize but a section of it has a flat roof How do engineers feel about flat roofs? 
Um, well, I suppose flat roofs maybe 15 or 20 years ago are a completely different makeup to what the flat roof is now. Um, they used to have a terrible reputation. They did, yeah. Because and they leaked. And they were never done right. And we had a huge problem in that they weren't properly uh, insulated. And then they were too well insulated with no ventilation. So what happened was the timber started to sweat and it started to rot. And then the material that was used on the, the roof covering started to fray and started to crack and started to leak. So we there's a number of new products on the if the likes of Ladex or Trocol, which is a rubber based material, and it has a very good lifespan. But the um, I suppose the carpenters or the roofers that's constructing these um, buildings now are better in tune of what's required in the roof. And again, going with your building regulations, the different types of roofs, your warm roof or your cold roof construction, if they're done right you won't have a problem with them. And it's it's becoming more and more common in the house types now that you do have uh, a number of flat roofs, particularly with the likes of zinc detailing as well. It looks really well. It's a nice finished. And if it's done right, and once it's inspected throughout the building process, you won't have an issue with it. But in this caller's case, since this is a, an older house, we don't know necessarily mm. how old, but let's assume it's an old felt roof. What type of advice would you be giving to the prospective buyer? Everything has a lifespan. If it's an old felt roof, it's it's more than, I suppose, 15 to 20 years old. At that point, it's coming towards the end of its lifespan. I would look at upgrading that and putting a new roof covering on, as I said, the likes of your trocol or your latex membrane. It's also, I would imagine at that age, there's no insulation in the roof either. So mm-hmm. you can insulate your roof, again, improving the energy efficiency of your property, putting a new roof finish on it to ensure that the water stays out. So that's for the seller to negotiate, really, isn't it? It, it is indeed, You're yes. not going to say run a mile necessarily. No, no, absolutely not. No, we, we price would, in the upgrade if you can. Yeah, we would, we would make recommendations on our reports that, you know, whilst the roof isn't leaking now, it's a flat roof, has uh, X number of years on site, it has a lifespan, and we would recommend the following. Not something that needs to be done straight away, but something that should be done in the short term to increase the energy efficiency of the house as well. All right. Porig, a few people are asking for your contact number. You're based in the Athlone area. How can you be reached? Uh, well, I can be reached on my, can give my mobile number. Yeah, that's shoot. It's, it's and we mobile, have it here as well yeah, for anybody who doesn't have a pen. Mobile number 0876526662 or the office number is 09064778881. And you're in business 19 years, so a big yes, anniversary coming next up next year. We have, yeah, we're planning something big next year, all right, for for uh, kind of like a competition to celebrate the 20 years. So hopefully Onwards and upwards. Onwards and upwards. Porrick, great having you on the programme. Thank you very Thank you much. It's a pleasure to be here. That's Porrick Connell. He's a chartered building engineer based in the Athlone area.